HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. You know, at Heritage Radio Network, we have a full week of live shows that we produce out of our studio at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and that we produce remotely online. Do you like food radio? You must because you're here listening to Tech Bites. And my guess is if you're listening to Tech Bites, you're probably a fan of some of the other shows that we have. We have shows about cheese and tequila and bartending and school lunch and just about anything you can imagine. Stories about food history, stories about food politics, farming. If you like Heritage Radio, you like podcasts, you like the idea of listening and sharing and learning and preserving and recording things to listen to later, I'm going to encourage you to become a Heritage Radio Network member. July is our big membership drive, and we are trying to bring listeners like you into the family and into our community. It doesn't take that much. You can make a single donation for about $25, or you can set up a reoccurring donation monthly. $5 a month will get you a super swanky piece of HR and swag, the baseball cap. And $10 a month will get you the Heritage Radio Network wine cooler tote bag, which How can you not need that given that it's summer and we live so much of our lives outdoors now? If community food-based radio is important to you, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart, and think about becoming a member today. It'll help us make more radio. It'll keep the lights on. You'll have access to all kinds of amazing insider things. And it'll also help us just keep our library of thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts alive and well so that it's there for you. It's there for future eaters, cooks, and food lovers in the future because saving our past is important for what we're going to do tomorrow. So that's my little uh, HRN July membership drive. Um, Give it a thought. You know, maybe while you're listening to this episode, click over to heritageradionetwork.org and click the beating heart and follow along. So also to today's business, we have an interesting look at the past going forward. We have Nell's leader from Bread Alone. He is second generation running Bread Alone. He's the current CEO. He is the son of founder Dan Leader. Bread Alone has been around since 1983 which is a pretty long time. That's longer than Heritage Radio. And we have him on the show, not specifically to talk about bread, which is delicious and wonderful, but to talk about the amazing renovation that they did on their original bread baking facility up in Boyceville in the Catskills in New York City or New York State. They are now what we think is probably the only and the first net zero energy bakery facility in the country. 
We spend so much time thinking about where our food comes from, and we're typically focused on the ground that it's grown in and the farmers. Is it organic? How is it raised? The people growing and harvesting the food, are they being taken care of? How does the food get to us? Does it come on a truck? Is it local? Is it a boat? What's the carbon footprint of the delivery method? And then the food comes to us through the grocery store or delivery service or a farmer's market, and then we take it home and eat it. If it's something like bread or a processed item, jam, yogurt, cheese, anything, we don't think quite so much about how it's made. We don't think quite so much about what's the carbon footprint of the facility or the bakery that bakes the bread. But this is something that Nels has been thinking about and put into action. And we're going to talk to him about the process of where the idea came from, how long it took, and what it looks like today, how things are made in a bakery, plant, facility, kitchen. This is the next step, I think. And the more we learn about the process and journey of where our food comes from, as we click one piece of information into place, then we can move on to the next question. And I think this is probably one of the next questions. Is your food created, baked, produced in a net zero facility? That might be the next question consumers are asking from their companies. So now, thank you for joining us today. I know that was a really, really long intro. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Janet. And it was a wonderful intro. And I'm really glad that you already teed up some of the history of Bread Alone. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I... Nelson and I spoke earlier um, before the show, and my experience with Bread Alone really, you know, starts for me in, in the farmer's market at Union Square in New York City. Um, Bread Alone is always there, um, beautiful stand, and, you know, that's how I came to know the company. Um, I don't know that I was aware that you've been around since 1983, uh, which is amazing, and I'll say congratulations. Um, and I don't know that I knew you were second generation until we spoke, so... You know, in this day and age, especially on Tech Bytes, we talk to so many new companies. We talk to companies that are sometimes even in beta stages where they're just a proof of concept and kind of almost don't even have a product. Um, we're talking about really new, new things that barely exist. So it's a nice change of pace to have something that has so much um, heritage and longevity, but is still kind of forging ahead and, and looking to what the next thing is. Um, so, I mean, obviously you've grown up in, in the bread world and bread alone and in the bakery. Um, tell us, tell us at what point, um, from your point of view as the current CEO, at what point did you start thinking about the energy footprint of your bakeries? Sure. Well, to, to tell you about, um, my commitment to climate change and the work that the bakery is doing today, I really need to highlight that. Bread Alone's commitment to the natural world started with our first loaf of bread in 1983. And at the time, that meant a commitment to organic agriculture. And to appreciate what Bread Alone was doing back then, you have to try to put yourself into a, a 1980s mindset. So one, that means if you go into a grocery store, you want to purchase bread. At the time, you'd find a lot of Wonder Bread type product. You couldn't go to a grocery store and find the assortment of artisan style or organic products that you have today. And the, the organic standard in the U.S. didn't even exist back then. It wasn't until the late 80s when the USDA recognized an organic standard. So my parents, my father, um, uh, was an early pioneer in this organic movement. And from visits to farmers and millers, he recognized intuitively that organic agriculture was the appropriate way to nurture and treat our earth. And since the early 80s, we've, of course, learned so much more about organic agriculture. We feel strongly at the bakery that it's the right choice, certainly for the farm workers that are in our fields. Persistent exposure to pesticides is a carcinogen. We need to look after the health of our farm workers. So it's better for our farm workers, it's better for the health of our soil, and it's better for our individual health. So Bredelon has had that commitment since the very early uh, days. Uh, but in our world right now, there are other issues that confront 
the natural world that we have to take on. And top of that list in my mind is climate change. I think it's so interesting um, to frame to frame the conversation in your story about a single idea, which is you know a dedication to the natural world which those words have not changed in 38 years, but the meaning of them has. And I think that's a good thing to note. Similarly, you know, what we understand is, you know, organic and natural and using those words also, I think, have had definitions that have evolved over time. Um, And it's interesting to frame it that way, that when you first started 38 years ago, that meant one thing, and today it means something else entirely well evolution uh progress embracing change being forward-looking it's always been a part of what we do at the bakery we're not dogmatic and being stuck in one way of doing things so we we hope to set that example for other values first entrepreneurs out in the world you know 40 years ago uh, my father he was um a young food entrepreneur like so many people today he uh, left a, uh, a chef existence in New York City to start his own business in the country. And he was part of that maker movement. And with the work we're doing at the business business today, we want to show what the next step can be for those businesses. What do you do 30 years later after going through that phase uh, of business growth as a maker? So hopefully we, we show through our commitment to uh, taking action against climate change, and the evolution of the business overall, how you move forward with um, uh, a values-first maker business. So you are um, a a trained climate leader for the Al Gore Climate Reality Project. Yep, Uh, I did the training uh, a number of years ago now, and there were some um, really informative elements to that training that have sculpted the work that Brennalone is doing today. Uh, I'd say the, the the biggest takeaway I had from that training was uh, I came away with a really clear roadmap of the type of action that I believe is most impactful for combating climate change. And I know a lot of people struggle with how do you um, uh, uh, frame your thinking around this big unwieldy issue. And for me, as a result of that training, I came away with the understanding that we have to think about the buildings that uh, our lives take place in, our, our workplaces and our homes. How do we make those workplaces and homes low carbon? So that's number one. Number two, the ways we get around the world, our transportation, whether that's our cars, public transit, or uh, when we choose to travel, when we get on an airplane. And then finally, it's the things we put in our body, our food. And uh, across all three of those big levers that I feel like we need to pull to decarbonize our economy, I'm trying to do our best work at Brought Alone. So at what point in time did you start to think about renovating the Boyceville Bakery into something net zero carbon neutral? Because this is not a pro- this is not the type of project that you decide like, hey, we're going to go organic, and you can sort of put those wheels into motion very quickly by you know mm-hmm. looking at different things that are available. This is a foundationally a, a much larger project. That's correct. I, I wish I could tell everyone today that the work is really easy and there's a scripted <laughs> approach to doing it, but that isn't the case. It does take time. Well, it wasn't for you, but maybe people listening to this will have a little bit more of an outline and a roadmap and a script to follow because you you were our, you know, an icebreaker. That, that's certainly the hope. We, we say at the bakery that we, we hope to touch more people than we can feed. We know that the reach of our bread is always going to be somewhat limited. Our aspiration is to be a, a thriving regional business, but hopefully our actions can touch a lot more folks. Uh, so the project, um, the, the decision to reimagine our Boysville facility really took root five years ago. Uh, But the vision of making it a net zero carbon neutral facility didn't come into focus until a bit later. And the the reason for that is that my experience in in, uh, taking action against climate change has been that at every moment you have to look to affect change at the highest level you can. And Brett alone, like so many other individuals and businesses, is on a journey. Uh, 
for us, it started a long time ago in 1983 uh, from the moment when we made the decision to take more meaningful action uh, against climate change. Uh, we uh, made the decision in 2018 to put a 200 kilowatt solar array on the roof of our primary production facility. We did a lot of retrofits around the facility to reduce our energy consumption. We uh, rolled out composting across all of our locations. And it was from those actions, those projects, that we learned more about the steps you can take to reduce your carbon footprint. And building on all that prior work, we were able to create the vision for the net zero carbon neutral bakery in, in Boyceville. So it was the, the sort of the collision of our decision to renovate Boyceville, uh, along with the experience we had gained doing other projects around the business that allowed us to, to conceptualize the, the net zero carbon neutral facility. So when did you, when did you, I'm not going to say break ground because the facility already existed, but when did you do the planning, make the plans, and then start in earnest to convert the facility? And take us through what pieces of the process you needed to make changes to, to get to that neutral footprint. Um, I mean, your bread is baked in a wood burning oven, so that's wood, that's not gas or something or something else. But, you know, people who maybe don't have an idea of what the um, equipment elements are in the process of baking bread in a large scale production facility, even if you are baking artisan bread, you know, fermented with beautiful grains, what's the what are the what are the pieces that you needed to renovate, change out? And did they exist on the market for you to like plug and play? Or did you have to then create something as a solution. Yep. So to, to give a sense for the timeline, uh, we began um, uh, architectural planning in earnest in early 2019, uh, so about three years ago. And uh, we, we faced a, a tough decision when COVID hit in early 2020, whether to continue pushing ahead uh, with the project despite all the changes in the world. So I flagged that as a um, uh, as a note for for other entrepreneurs, because we we had to make that scary decision to continue with progress despite the challenges that that were facing the world, and that's you know a microcosm of of the process. You you have to find ways to persevere and find resilience uh, when those challenges come up. Uh, did, did deciding to continue with the project though to better the facility for the future and the future environment and to continue to evolve your business? Was there some comfort in saying, well, we're going to keep working towards the future in spite of our current present situation, which is rather dire and distressing globally? I mean, I, I understand, I understand the stress point of, you know, oh my gosh, you know, everything is closed and we want to do this major renovation, but deciding to persevere and, and follow your line of progress, was that comforting in some way? Yeah, that's, an, that's an interesting insight. I, uh, I certainly didn't have that thought at the time because we were, we were also managing the day-to-day of our business. Um, so it certainly felt like we had plenty of other things to focus on, but to your point, Jen, I think, um, our momentum on the project meant something, not just to our employees, but to the community. Uh, in a time when everyone was struggling, and, and we, we, we wrote about this at the time on social media and otherwise, the specific decision to push forward despite the challenges in the world. And I do think that was um, a, a, a piece of hope and, and inspiration uh, to folks. Okay. So you're in 2020. We're in the pandemic thing. The world is stopping. Supply chain is stopping. Um, Food and work become really critical in ways they've never been in the past. Um, What are you doing in 2020? So I want (laughs) to, I want to pick up on, on your initial prompt of, you know, what, what do we have to figure out to, mm-hmm. to do this project? How do we have to change our, our baking process and reimagine how we would run a bakery uh, to make it net zero? And at the heart of it is a really important point that 
I believe we all need to apply across our lives, and that is clean electrification. So um, number one, we had to remove the, the use of fossil fuels from our process. We had to electrify everything in the bakery. And uh, some of those solutions are pretty tried and true at this point. Uh, uh, most importantly, the mechanical systems for the building, instead of using a propane or a natural gas-fired heating system, we moved to air source heat pumps. And again, that's, that's pretty tried and true at this point. You just have to make the commitment to do it for your buildings. The uh, production of, of food was a bigger challenge. Uh, some of the solutions were readily available, and we just had to do the research and implement. For example, we converted our kitchens to induction burners from propane stoves. Again, those, those solutions are out there. You just have to make the commitment to do them. And then the induction was powered by solar. Correct. That's, that's mm -hmm. the, the next step, how you source from renewable resources all of the energy after you have electrified everything. And I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that mm -hmm. in a second. For bread baking, this was a bigger challenge. Most uh, commercial scale bakeries rely on propane or natural gas to create heat. We need a lot of it. And so here we innovated. Uh, we worked with uh, an oven manufacturing partner out of Germany named Hoeft. Uh, they are the supplier for the oven system that we have at our production bakery. And they designed an electric heat exchanger that very efficiently converts electricity into heat for, for our baking process. And I won't get bogged down in the technical details of how it works, but the, these heating elements heat a fluid, it's called thermal oil, and then that fluid is circulated through the base of the ovens, almost like radiant heating in a home, and it's a very efficient way to get heat from that electric element into the product. And Jen, you mentioned that um, or you highlighted that we are also baking using our wood-fired brick ovens. These are the ovens that helped build bread alone through the 80s and 90s. And we made a really important integration between the wood-fired brick ovens and our new electric thermal oil ovens by creating steam generators. You need a lot of uh, steam to bake good bread. And that steam requires a lot of energy to produce. And that's coming from this electric oven system that we purchased. So that was a much bigger innovation uh, to electrify uh, the process, the baking system and the steam generating system. And just out of curiosity, where what, what's the point of origin of these different pieces of equipment and systems? And I'm just curious in terms of thinking about where is this type of technology being created and used and sold in the world? Because that also has an impact, I think, on when people are building things or installing things, you know, what's readily accessible, similar to, you know, you go to the grocery store and you look around and you see what's readily accessible. And that's a lot of how people make decisions, you know, convenience and availability. Where do these different uh, pieces of equipment come from? Almost everything that I just mentioned is manufactured in Germany at the hmm. Hoyt factory in a town called Bell. It's it's a, a manufacturing town essentially built around the Hoyt factory at this point. Uh, so there's a, a deep culture of engineering and manufacturing in that town. And it's in part why the quality of the equipment that comes out of it is so high. It's a big part of a lot of people's lives that live in that community. So interesting. Yeah, a really a, just a different uh, approach to uh, community and manufacturing and my hope is that by, in essence, opening the pipeline to that the thinking, the manufacturing, the technology, will get more businesses here, more bakeries here to adopt it. Well, more businesses, more bakeries adopting it. But this is hopefully how one of the ways that they will find out about what is possible. We are going to take a quick break and find out who the underwriter is of this show making this podcast possible. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, 
and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is a bread alone bakery that has been refitted and rebuilt to be 100% renewable energy, net zero energy. Probably, we think, the only one, the first one in the United States. Joining us today is Nels Leader, who is the CEO, second generation running Bread Alone, which has been around since 1983. If you want to take a look at their products, cafes, the shop, and some photos of the history of this renovation, go to breadalone.com and you can follow them on social media at Bread Alone Bakery. It's really an interesting uh, story about deciding to change a production facility to make it net zero and to use 100% renewable energy. And as I said at the top of the show, we spend a lot of time thinking about where our food comes from. And that typically starts where it's grown. We talk about how it gets to us. We're very focused on what the carbon footprint is of transporting our food from point A to point B and then point B to our homes we're not really at the place yet where we're taking a look at manufacturing. We look at production in terms of how people are treated. We look at production in terms of supply chain. But we're not really looking at the carbon footprint of how our bread gets baked or how those donuts get made or the cookies or the jam or whatever your favorite thing is. I'm sure if you opened your refrigerator right now, you would see a ton of products that were produced somewhere. What's the energy expenditure there? So we're about halfway through the story with Nels about how they decided to refit their original production facility in Boyceville. And interestingly, a lot of the equipment and technology comes from Europe, comes from a place in Germany. So Nels, you really had to do research to go out to look to find these different things. Do you find, did you find any production or equipment available in the United States? Are we thinking about that here? Are we producing things to be net zero energy efficient? I think domestically, the the story to highlight, the encouraging story to highlight is the number of uh, tradesmen and installers that are a key part of the process that are increasingly available and have the expertise to do the work. So a lot of manufacturing of the equipment itself is still abroad, and that's true uh, both for the type of bakery equipment I was describing, for the type of air handling equipment that I was describing, and in truth, for uh, a lot of renewable energy production, whether that is wind or solar. But installing and knowing how to work with all those uh, components needs to be done on the ground. And our experience has been that there's a really rich network of solar installers and other engineers that are ready to partner for these types of projects. For our project in Boyceville, I described how we went about the task of electrifying everything in the bakery. 
And then Jen, you mentioned earlier that we then need to produce from renewable resources all of that electricity. So for us, that meant installing about 350 kilowatts of solar online. And we, of course, worked with a regional contractor on that part of the project. Solar is so interesting. Um, I mean, conceptually, is the idea for energy and using it in different ways. We did a show um, with a rooftop winery in Brooklyn that uses solar pergolas to fuel um, as the energy source for both the grapes that they're growing on the rooftop as well as for the cafe restaurant that they have. It's episode 239 and it was in 2021. Uh, Rooftop Reds is the name of it. And it's a, you know, I did not realize that there was solar fabric. So they literally Hmm. have these beautiful pergolas that are the uh, mechanism that captures the solar energy. And they're working with a a company that has a lot of fabric-based things to do, you know, awnings and stuff outside, sails, things like that. So it's just fascinating when you start looking around for, one, the technology that's available, and two, creative ways that businesses are, you know, trying to incorporate it into what they do. Um, absolutely fascinating. So you did your conversion. How long did this all take and how was it working through the pandemic? I can imagine it would have been a project that would have had a lot of uh, just... Any anytime you do renovation and construction, you have delays, you have supply chain issues, something you thought was going to work doesn't work. Was that just exponential because you were working through uh, a global crisis? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, in a word, yes, uh, it, it was. It was a big challenge. We, we started we, uh, construction in March of 2021, and the really ambitious uh, hope when we when we put the first shovel in the ground was to wrap in six months and be open for uh, for fall. Uh, and uh, we ultimately uh, weren't able to get the doors open until uh, February of this year of 2022. So you know it took almost twice as long as as we uh, hoped. And uh, our, our initial timeline was admittedly ambitious, but it, it really was the world that we were operating in that made it so difficult. And Jen, it was, you know, it wasn't any one component. It was delays we ran into almost at every phase of the process on items big, um, manufacturers being backed up to provide key large components of the project to the smallest detail, like the type of screw or fastener that you use for the roof system. Uh, that was just no longer available. The type of thing that would always be sitting in a warehouse during normal times, you cannot get. So managing construction was like a game of whack-a-mole of um, solving <laughs> um, the problem of the day and the supply chain challenge uh, of the day. You finally open the doors. You're amazed. You can't believe you crossed the finish line. Did, it, did you have to change the way you bake the bread at all? I know you talked about, you know, electrifying things and switching things over a little bit. Did your bread process change? The the core bread process didn't uh, change too much. I'd say the biggest uh, uh, baking challenge for, for our team was re-familiarizing ourselves uh, working with our original wood-fired brick ovens. Uh, we, we had grown... Uh, accustomed to baking with modern ovens. And that's, um, you know, you, just like your home oven, you set the temperature and and uh, just wait a few minutes while, while the temperature comes up. And working with a wood-fired oven, uh, you have to control, the, the, the baker has to control the intensity of the heat coming off the wood, the amount of time that you're burning that fire to heat the oven, ensuring that you heat each part of the oven uh, evenly, and there was a, a learning curve in, in getting the team refamiliarized and retrained to, to work with those beautiful but admittedly temperamental uh, ovens. And, you know, at, at the beginning of the show, Jen, you, you, I think you used the words saving our past 
um, while keeping in mind what's important for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And for us, these brick ovens are a really important piece of, of saving our past and preserving the, the entrepreneurial, passion-driven, bread alone story, even as right alongside those wood-fired brick ovens, we have these modern solar-powered uh, ovens imported from Germany. Uh, so the, the hard work of, of getting back into the, the wood-fired brick ovens is how one part of how we're saving our past. It's um, bread in the wood-fired oven is always so delicious because you can taste it certainly um you taste when you it eat and, the bread and for me one of the the parts of the bread that comes out of the wood fired brick oven that i love so much is that you know the heat is not perfectly distributed in these ovens you're going to have hotter spots and colder spots so a loaf of bread may not have that perfect even coloration across it uh that some would equate with the perfect loaf for me having some of that diversity having the really dark corner that you can pick off alongside the corner that maybe it's better for a sandwich that's untoasted. I love that part of the product that comes out of the wood-fired brick ovens. So because you do create a product ultimately that people are going to buy, and after 38 years in business, you definitely have a core clientele who is expecting a specific type of, of experience and loaf of bread when they buy your product. Was that also part of a challenge? figuring out how to maintain the consistency of what people are expecting? Has the bread changed over the past 38 years? I would imagine to a certain extent that it has subtly from, you know, one year to the next, from, you know, one loaf to the next, there are sort of natural differences in something that is naturally made. But how, how much of a concern or thought went into now that we have this new production facility, we have. What do we need to do to make sure that the bread is is what it should be and what people are expecting? Not yeah, that something different wouldn't be delicious, but sometimes people want what they want, and even if different is amazing, that's not what they want. They don't want different. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is a place in the business where there's there's um, uh, an interesting break between uh, people's perception and our experience on the ground. So the perception is that. You know, the bread must have been at its best when we first opened our doors and it was still Dan baking the bread. Um, and that ever since it's been um, a challenge of trying to preserve that initial loaf. And in reality, we have consistently become better bakers over the years. And, uh, you know, my father will often joke that the, the bread in the early days just wasn't that good because they were figuring out what to do and how to bake. So when I think about our product, I, I really see it as a con continual progression. And um, for our customers, the challenge is sometimes uh, convincing them that a change is good. When we uh, innovate a product and it looks a little bit different than it did previously, um, uh, ensuring that they have the trust in us that it is a good change. And it's part of the the culture of progression that I mentioned earlier, uh, our business today will not look like our business yesterday. And uh, we are going to continue that progression, including trying to become better bakers every day. Do you need to tell people, do you tell people, your customers um, on packaging or, you know, the vendors in the green market or in the cafes, um, this bread is baked in a, in a wood fired oven. That means it is, you know, has a unique, you know, color and crust and it's not uniform because, you know, fire is not uniform. Do you need to signal sort of different things of like the beautiful imperfections of the process is uh, what we expect? Yes, we, uh, so right now we have the products from the uh, Net Zero Bakery in Boyceville are being sold at our Hudson Valley cafes and we uh, in the coming months, we'll be rolling more of them out to the farmer's markets in New York City. So Jen, you'll soon be able to go to Union Square and, and buy a loaf of bread baked out of the bakery in Boysville. And uh, we, we put together uh, a menu that explains the products and the process that will um, 
um, bring everyone along as we, we make these changes. And, and more importantly, hopefully uh, give folks um, uh, a sense of satisfaction from supporting this specific change in the world and set an expectation for the type of other businesses that they, they want to support. Well, like anything in a, in a marketplace, once you have a differentiator, you will either be the sole bread that is baked in a net zero energy facility, or you will be the first in, in a category. And I know that while being uh, the differentiator might have some economic value, I know that for you, your interest is that you become the leader in a category of bakeries that are net zero energy all over, because that's sort of the end goal in, in some points, from some points of view. I, I ask a question, this is something that we talked about also um, earlier before the show. You know, certainly consumers are voraciously interested in, in where their food comes from. And this may be a point where not just the bread is delicious and amazing, but I feel better about it because it's renewable energy. We are in a, a time of, of crisis for business owners in terms of staffing and certainly in food production and restaurants and hospitality. Um, there is a great struggle right now to find um, employees and people to come and work in the food industry right now. Has this, has this renovation and this commitment and the uniqueness of your facility being 100% renewable, has that become a point of interest for people who want to come and work in a place like this? I mean, if you're the only one in the country and somebody wants to learn how to bake in this type of environment, you're the only game in town. Yeah. You know, Jen, to, to this point in the conversation, uh, I think we focused on the historic and maybe the moral case for the types of actions that Brennan has taken. And we haven't focused so much on the business case. But, you know, Bretelon, we're now a business that employs uh, about 240 people, and we uh, own completely the responsibility of providing for the, the folks that, that uh, allow this ship to sail every day. And so when we make decisions for the business, we have to make decisions that will set us up for continued economic success. And I firmly believe that consumers want the easy ways to support positive change in the world, and by positioning our business to, to meet those needs, we're setting ourselves up to continue to have economic success. So part of the, the uh, rationale and motivation to make these changes is the continued success of the business. And a key part of that, as you were just describing, is uh, building an incredible team. And uh, to your point, um, we believe that in a workplace, you will only be happy if you are contributing to a cause that is a little bit bigger than yourself. That's that's proven, that is research. That's one of the things that leads to satisfaction in the workplace. So we hope to provide that for the employees that uh, choose to work with us. And it, it's an appropriate mo moment to mention that that has to exist alongside um, being supported in your life. An employee needs to make a living wage and be comfortable outside of the workplace to enjoy their time in it. And in the food industry, this is, it's, a, it's a challenge. Um, the, the economic structure of our industry hasn't historically supported uh, living wage jobs. So Bread Alone is uh, endeavoring to create a model to demonstrate that these things can exist. And uh, I'm really proud of the, the progress that we've made to date. Uh, to that end, we have um, healthcare, dental, profit sharing, uh, an hourly wage that, that supports our workforce in this area. And we continue to, to uh, do more to better support the people that allow this business to thrive. You know, you have so many, you have said so many times during the broadcast of this show about the things that are important to you outside of just creating a great loaf of bread, you know, the environment, um, employees, energy, you know, the product, it, it's almost like bread alone is the, 
antithesis to what you're actually building, which is bread is everything. <laughs> Do you, um, so much of this sounds like self, um, you know, self-education, self-edification and goals that you've set for yourself and thus for your business is it uh, are do you, do you feel under pressure to attain all these things? I mean, you have a pretty pretty uh, full plate in terms of both the day to day goals of you know running business shop by shop, but you also have some rather large you know conceptual you know environmental planetary people goals, which can be daunting. Do you think about the the size and scale of that or no, because it's something that you've come to on your own. So it's not as if, you know, you have the pressure bearing down on you of somebody saying you have to do these things. I mean, look, I'm, I, I think uh, I'm able to keep the, the scale of, of our enterprise in in context and and um, bread alone is still a relatively small uh, enterprise. So when I if I feel a moment of stress, I try to remind myself uh, of that. Um, but I, I don't, I view the, the work that we get to do as, as a responsibility and a privilege. Um, the, I, I had a great platform to, to carry into the future. And my motivation is, is ensuring that the, the story continues to be as enriching as, as, as the past. And going back to one of the points in the beginning of the conversation, hopefully Brett alone can can set the example for how a small business grows and thrives without succumbing to some of the, the pitfalls that we, we see take place, uh, specifically, um, uh, I think, responding to some of the pressure of continuing to grow uh, by taking on partners that may not share in, in the initial values. And that's something that we, we've seen a lot in the food industry over the years, and, and Brennan is really committed to resisting. Um, and, and the motivation to do that for me comes from the opportunity to, to set an example. So you have set certainly an example and a framework for a net zero, 100% renewable energy bakery up at Boyceville. Now that you're open and you're up and running and you're in production, what do you? what are your next projects? What are you doing with the balance of the year next year? What are the next pieces of the puzzle that you are putting into place or thinking about putting into place. Yep. So I, I think I mentioned earlier that we're always trying to affect change at, at the highest level we can. And with the Boyceville project done, uh, we, we now have the opportunity to reinvest in our, uh, for our main manufacturing facility, our main bakery in Kingston uh, to scale uh, the organic bread uh, business that folks uh, experience when they go shopping in Whole Foods or on Fresh Direct and see our sliced organic breads on the shelves. And we want to take some of the learnings from the Boyceville project and now apply them here. And this will be a bigger challenge. Um, the, the type of uh, electric heating technology that we applied in Boyceville hasn't yet been scaled to the level we would need to scale it to, to uh, apply it here in our main bakery. So taking on that challenge of how we can take some learnings from the last project and apply them on a larger scale, that's that's the focus now. Okay. Well, and again, I think it's it's a little um, it's a it's a little incongruous that it's just bread alone because it's not really bread <laughs> alone, is it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the spirit. Uh, of bread alone from the beginning was um, uh, providing a, something that was simple and honest mm -hmm. to the world. And uh, ultimately, that's what we are still doing. And our, our definition of, of uh, simple and honest uh, encompasses all the things that we've been talking about today. So uh, maybe, maybe that's a good note to start wrapping on. <laughs> well, Nels, thank you for joining us today. And again, if listeners want to take a look at the Bread Alone story, visit them online, breadalone.com. Follow them on social media at Bread Alone Bakery. And, you know, I will say that part of part of what Nels is doing at Boyceville and with his company is to create 
a framework and a roadmap for other businesses to follow him. And part of what I do as the host and producer of Tech Bytes is to give him a platform to share that with other business owners, bakers, and people who are interested. And maybe someone listening to this will find it helpful and will be inspired and maybe reach out and make a change in their business and in their life. And that is the power of an idea. That is the power of a conversation. And that is the power of being able to have those conversations transcend time and geography. And I think that's important. And I know Nels thinks that's important. And if you think that's important, become a member of Heritage Radio Network. We are in our July membership drive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org. Click on the beating heart. Um, Nels, how much does a loaf of bread alone cost? Our sliced organic breads retail for $5.49 to $6.49, depending on uh, the markup that a retailer puts on them. So you could, listeners, make a monthly donation of $5 a month to Heritage Radio Network, and it would not be perhaps as physically sustaining as a delicious loaf of bread alone, but it might be sustaining in lots of other ways. Think about becoming a member today. Come back and listen to the episodes. Listen to our library you know, it's not Bread Alone. It's not Heritage Radio Network alone. We need you as listeners and a part of our community to make it all happen. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.